welcome to the Women in Archaeology podcast, a podcast about, for, and by women in the field. I'm Emily Long, and I'm joined by my fellow hosts, Chelsea Slotten and Kirsten Lopez. Our guest for this episode is Dr. Paulette Steves. We are absolutely thrilled that you're here, and we're looking forward to learning about your research, discussing about decolonizing archaeology, and so on. So thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, it's so great for you to be here. I'm super excited. Thank you. Nice to be here. Before we jump into all of your research, um, love to uh, have you tell the audience a little bit about yourself, like what got you into archaeology and where you went to school and all that exciting stuff. Hey, well, um, Tansi and Miigwech for having me uh, here on your podcast today. I am a descendant of Cree and Métis people. I did not grow up in my home community because my home community, our lands were disenfranchised from my family. I grew up, though, in British Columbia among the Salish people. And um, I went to school in, uh, I did my undergrad at the University of Arkansas at Fayetteville. And while I was there, I was actually pre-med, but I had a, a lady, Carrie Wilson, asked me to help the Quapaw tribe if I could, because I was working in the medical field and I was indigenous and there weren't many uh, really indigenous students or First Nations or Native American students there. And they wanted to uh, do some work to support reclaiming about 500 ancestors that were being held in museums as collections. So that really got me thinking about the purpose of work and why we did our research and why I was learning what I was learning. And I actually switched anthropology and archaeology. And I did uh, join the honors program and I wrote a, wrote a competitive grant and did the work for the Quapaw tribe that they asked me to do. And based on that work, they reclaimed, they were able to reclaim 500 of their ancestors and rebury them in their traditional homeland. So that kind of really um, set my path in archaeology. And growing up in the contemporary world and being uh, a colonized person, we're taught not to listen to our own voices, to our own people. We're taught not to listen at all. But listening to Creator, listening to our ancestors, that's a very important part of Indigenous ways of knowing, being, and doing. Mm -hmm. So since my undergraduate years, I've spent a lot of time learning to re-listen to Creator and to the ancestors about the path that I was meant to be on. And I can look back now and see so many times when they were screaming at me uh, which direction to go in. Yeah. So, so I ended up um, working in the medical for three years after I got my under, undergraduate degree in the medical field in Miami, Florida, but then going into field archaeology and eventually to graduate school. And I did my master's and PhD at the university, um, at the State University of New York at Binghamton. There was nobody in any field anywhere that was doing the archaeological research that I thought I was being asked to do, that, that I thought my ancestors were asking me to do. Yeah. So I was choosing between um, a number of different offers from different universities and thinking that I needed to be where I could 
pursue my own research rather than just take up a piece of a faculty research. Yes. And that ended ended up being at Binghamton. Nice. So um, that was a real awakening, though, on really how colonized universities, specifically archaeology, the field is. Yeah. Uh, had yeah. a lot of really, um, really faced a lot of aggressive colonization there, I guess. I, in classes, I had other students tell me to watch what I say. Just a lot of really overt aggression. Uh, because I was an indigenous person and I was talking about colonization and really, I mean, I was learning about it myself. Nobody teaches us about colonization when we're growing up. We live with it. We experience it. But yeah. when you learn to voice what it is and how it impacts your people, um, a lot of people in archaeology have been really threatened by that. Yeah, so, I mean, that's um, that's where I went to school, I, I'm very happy that uh, Andrew Merriweather brought me there. I actually started as a, as a STEM student in, in DNA studies, and I switched after a year because I was learning to listen. But I had a, I had a full-ride scholarship there, and I really appreciate that, uh, that they offered me that and that it worked out well. Nice. Yeah, that sounds like quite a plate um, to be handed and to figure out how to start, I guess, um, what is now known as indigenous archeology. span um, So that's, you know, hats off <laughs> on yeah. succeeding in that. Um, Cause I know it's, it's rough going into the university system and not really knowing what to expect as far as the colonized structure as you've very poignantly named it, um, but others, ha you know, can be, uh, has been named as other things such as just like the very top down, very stuck. And it's these institutions, uh, the university institution has been around for so long and hasn't really changed uh, since like the 1500s much um, in <laughs> Europe. So, I mean, that in and of itself, is such a strong yeah it's like i i experienced um a lot of racism too i mean how embedded it is in archaeology so i worked for oh, yeah. five years as a field tech full time i mean 362 days a year just about um wow. in the states and in canada before i went to grad school and when I was working with Carrie Wilson, she told me a story once that she drove up to a site where they were excavating and uh, the field techs yelled, the Indians are here, the Indians are here, hide everything. And she just cracked up laughing because she's dealt with this for years. But I realized uh, doing cultural resource management and field archaeology that a lot of times a memorandum of agreement with a community was just a way to get their agreement to go out and do this work on on you know privately owned or commercially owned land yeah. and you know that memorandums of agreement weren't followed the last three jobs i was on in field work i think i was fired from or let go from because i refused to go along with destroying sites or not reporting cultural sites oh wow so wow. there's a lot of um there's a lot that needs to be changed um, mm -hmm. in the yeah. U.S. I mean, it's great that we have NAGPRA, but people in the field don't don't follow NAGPRA, and students 
to get an archaeology degree, I mean, how many of you were required to take a course on the indigenous history or indigenous people of the America? It doesn't mm -hmm. exist. It doesn't. Uh, you know, those requirements to actually understand the people, you know, or the history of the people whose land you're going out as a field tech to excavate on don't exist. That's, yeah. that's another thing that really uh, needs to change. Yeah, yeah, particularly at an undergrad level, because I, I know certainly as a, at a graduate level, you know, you get the, the 400, 500, 600 level classes, you know, special topics in anthropology and archaeology that are often taught as one-offs or, you know, maybe they happen once every four years. And yeah, and they're electives. Yeah, they're, they're electives. Um, sometimes majors can get into them, but they really are geared to more towards grad students. And a lot of people who are going to go out and do, you know, CRM archaeology, be shovel bums, aren't going to go get a grad degree um, because it's not necessary to do a lot of CRM work. Um, although I do think more and more people doing CRM are getting some graduate degrees. But that exposure um, and the awareness of the people whose, whose lands you're going to be working on needs to be brought in from, from the beginning. You know, we had Cassie on the show last year and she talked some about, you know, these memorandum of, of understanding these agreements, that it's not, it's not the sum total of what you need to do. It's the minimum bar, mm -hmm. um, but it's not the maximum that you should be doing. Um, and it, you know, some of what you're talking about really reminds me of that conversation that we had with her. Yeah. Yeah, and that's something that, depending on what part of the country or which country you're working in, um, there's some relationships that are stronger than others. And that was something that we spoke with Cassie about a little bit is in the Northwest here where I work, um, the relationships between a lot of tribes in um, the state of Washington and the state of Oregon are in a very different condition than other parts of the US um, and Canada. So it's interesting to see um, how those relationships are built and maintained, what things can trigger those relationships to improve or dis disintegrate. Um, and I think there's some people making effort to try and improve those, of course, um, but it's definitely not as big and as universal an effort as it could or should be. Yeah, there needs to be a federal, um, more federal regulations. I mean, we have NAGPRA, but there's no, who do you report to? If somebody's destroying an archaeology site, where's the federal yeah. office you report to? I mean, yeah. the professional register of archaeologists can't do anything. You can report no. to them, but what can they do? They don't have any authority. But yeah. I, one time I did, um, I was a crew chief on a 167-mile survey from the Arkansas-Texas border, across Arkansas, across the Mississippi Delta, and up over the Natchez Trace. I mean, there were between three and 12 archaeology sites, indigenous archaeology sites, in every single mile. Wow. Wow. Yeah. It's been a huge but project. The, but the management of that dig, which had a number of crews, was really, really deficient. You know, the, the, none of the students, I, I asked all of the, the, the field techs, nobody had ever taken a course on indigenous histories or indigenous people, but here they were out there just digging left and right and um, 
Yeah, it's. I guess in in the five years before I went to grad school, I was really exposed to not only how many of our stories were held in the land, but how uh, violated they were through processes in American archaeology. All, all of these field techs I worked with were still under the impression that, you know, Native Americans were Asians from Asia who only got here 10 to 12,000 years ago. So some of what I heard in, in the field and actually what I didn't hear uh, really pushed me to seriously consider going to graduate school and learning to listen to what I was exposed to and what my ancestors were telling me really guided me towards uh, towards the field that I'm in. Because like I said, there was nobody doing doing archaeology or pre-Clovis archaeology or archaeology mm -hmm. sites over 12,000 years on a whole, like trying to get a hemispheric picture. Nobody had done that. Um, mm -hmm. Thankfully, a lot of archaeologists, even though they uh, they they were really, they faced a lot of aggression for reporting on sites older than 12,000 years. Some of them had their careers destroyed, but they continued to do it. So for my work, I worked on some Pleistocene archaeology sites, but I tried to gather all the data over the last 100 years on everybody in North America that had ever reported on a site that was older than 12,000 years. So, so the story that my research pushes back against is the typical Eurocentric Western archaeological story that uh, Native Americans and people have only been in the Americas for maybe, you know, 12,000 years. Now they're saying 15,000 years at the most. And they're Asians who came over from Asia. But, you know, you have to remember, Asia didn't exist 12,000 years ago. Neither did a cultural group called Asians. So archaeologists use these political terminologies linked to contemporary day countries to disenfranchise indigenous people from their identities and their homeland. But there's a quote I'd like to share. Um, it's attributed to Louis Rael, and he said, my people will sleep for 100 years, but when they awake, it will be the artists who give them their spirit back. Mm -hmm. So after 500 years of colonization, the artists, storytellers, and the knowledge holders are awake, and other truths are now being told. So the story that I tell is another truth. It, well, it is a truth. It's actually pushing against um, a lot of Western conjecture about the past. But these mm. truths that are now rising bring an enormous wealth of proof that other truths are valid. So. This is the story I share in my upcoming book, The Indigenous Paleolithic of the Western Hemisphere from University of Nebraska Press. Mm -hmm. My story challenges dogmatic, dogmatic Eurocentric discussions of the history of the first people of the Western Hemisphere, what we now call the Americas, because for over 90 years, American archaeologists have argued that first people have only been here 12,000 years ago. So mm -hmm. this time, that time frame is really, really recent on a global scale of early human migrations. It's actually an anomaly. So you see that hominins were present in the Eastern Hemisphere for over 2 million years. The area we now call Asia, we have sites there that are over 2 million years ago. Mm -hmm. So we know, we know from fossil evidence that early people, early humans, Homo erectus, 
Neanderthal, Denisovians. They, they were all really competent travelers oh, that yeah. adapted to diverse ecosystems. They walked thousands and thousands of miles. They lived in every environmental area, every, mm-hmm. every type of weather you can imagine. They were smart. They, they, they adapted to it. They crossed um, open bodies of water, went to islands. But what, what's discussed, so we have all this great knowledge of early peoples in the Eastern Hemisphere, but when it comes to the Western Hemisphere, the Americas, those discussions have been severely constrained by the academic erasure of the deep indigenous past. Mm-hmm. And this is an erasure that has cleaved indigenous peoples' links to their ancient homeland, heritage, and identity. So this this is a part of colonization. Um, Tananaki Alfred and Jeff Corntassel have argued that uh, contemporary settlers follow the mandate provided for them by their imperial forefathers, and it's a colonial legacy. So not by attempting to eradicate the physical signs of indigenous people as human bodies, though that happened also, but by trying to eradicate their existence as people through an erasure of their history and geographies that provide the foundation for indigenous cultural identities and self. There's another well-known quote, and I'm sorry, I can't remember who it's attributed to, but the quote is, to know where you're going, you have to know where you are today. To know where you are today, you have to know where you have been. Well, where we have been for indigenous people has been erased denied, dehumanized, eradicated in so many ways by archaeologists, and that's only just starting to change. I mean, there's still a lot of arguments against people having been here longer than 12,000 years ago, but in my book, there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of sites that are dated before 12,000 years ago. And here's another great quote. You've got to love Scotty McNeish. He did a lot of work on sites that were, you know, older than 12,000 years. And he said, yeah. it's like the doctor said, you either are or you are not, but you cannot be just a little bit pregnant, right? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> he was great. So, you know, like all of these sites aren't all wrong. Yes. If people start going back and re-excavating, re-evaluating these sites, maybe we'll find that some of them aren't Pleistocene sites. But you got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of sites. And my book is telling you a lot of them are good sites. Oh, yeah. I That's mean, an excellent, excellent spot yeah. um, to end on on this segment. I've, I'm really looking forward to delving more into what are these sites and what does it mean to decolonize archaeology and all this great information? And so we will get more into that when we come back. Did you know that we have a blog? Check out the Women in Archaeology website for a variety of blog posts as well as past episodes. Interested in supporting the podcast? From the website, you can check out our Patreon account and learn about the different ways to help support the blog and podcast. We can give you a cool sticker in return. Again, Thank you for listening. Welcome back. We are here with Dr. Steves, and we've been discussing her book, uh, Decolonizing Archaeology, and so forth. And before we get more into her research, I thought it'd be good to, for the sake of our listeners, like, what does it mean to decolonize archaeology? And how is archaeology 
colonized because I think so much of how we are taught archaeology, it's considered the standard, it's the tradition. And so in what ways do we need to shift archaeology and because it's colonized? We need to shift it in many ways. <laughs> oh, yeah. Totally agree. So in, in, in teaching and in talking to people, it's just astounding to me how uninformed they are of colonization. And it's not their fault. Um, it hasn't been taught. People mm -hmm. haven't been taught what colonization is. They haven't been taught the colonial history. Archaeologists haven't been taught the total colonial history of, you know, academia and archaeology. So in learning to decolonize, we're not just working to decolonize education in the academy. We're working to decolonize minds and hearts and spirits. So words are not in it. Archaeologists write about the past and they choose words Quite often, uh, Cristiano Nico he discussed it as um, he discussed it as an ongoing colonization, an ongoing work where archaeologists are handmaidens of the state. Mm -hmm. So people are recreating discussions of the past based on archaeology, but through a framework, through a framework of what is safe, what supports the nation state. Mm -hmm. yeah. Right. So. Mm -hmm. So people have not people have not been taught what colonization is. They haven't been taught how it negatively impacts indigenous people, mm -hmm. but also how it impacts their own worldview. So words are used intentionally, mm -hmm. um, quite often to lead people to think a certain way. So. Archaeologists can can read about how others are decolonizing archaeology, but really the first thing they need to do is to learn what colonization is. You yeah. can't truly decolonize until you understand colonization and the impacts of colonization. And I do discuss some of that in my upcoming book. So when you look at... Um, residential schools when you look at the genocide that the canadian government has acknowledged mm -hmm. took place in canada against the indigenous people mm -hmm. this is you know 150 200 years of intense violence against indigenous people trying to eradicate their cultures archaeology is a continuation of that when it denies indigenous people's links to the land when it talks about people as having mysteriously disappeared, people don't mysteriously disappear. They move <laughs> over to the next valley, the other mountain range, because they ran yeah. out of water. Mm -hmm. But archaeologists choose to say they seriously disappeared. And, you know, that, that creates a lot of questions about contemporary indigenous people's links to people in the past and links to the land. So what it does, it creates an erasure of links to the lands of the America between contemporary people and the land and their ancestors. Archaeologists aren't taught this as undergrads or in graduate school. They, um, they need to read my book. They need to read a lot of other indigenous archaeologists and, and, and their like-minded peers that actually speak to the impacts of a colonial archaeology so you, you know people say oh it's changing but 
2017. Enough. Yeah, one of the sites I I studied, I studied the materials from for my PhD, the Soretti site, was finally published mm -hmm. in 2017. That's a site in Southern Ca California that dates to around 130,000 years. Well, yeah, this is ready. Mm -hmm. Steve Holen and his his research uh, partners held those materials for a long, long time, waiting for when a dating technology came along that could not be questioned, that they could really trust, mm -hmm. right? They knew the site, they studied the materials, they knew the land, they had, had um, so many ex experts, you know, in, the, in that area working on this, but they patiently waited. <clears throat> and when they finally published in 2017, they were violently, violently critiqued by mm -hmm. many people who were very angry and were denying that, you know, indigenous people had ever been here before 15,000 years. You have to ask yourself, why is the reaction from so many white archaeologists one of anger and violence? Mm. If I was going to critique a site, I would critique a site based on the science. I wouldn't be angry and violent. Yeah. But Steve Olin and his, his friends that worked on this with him were violently and aggressively, and to this day are still violently and aggressively critiqued. So it's not just that colonization has created this um, scenario in American archaeology that it's not just that they deny that people were here prior to 12,000 years ago. They get really angry and really violent and overly aggressive that is not ethical that is not archaeology that is not how we are supposedly taught to work to look for the past the point of archaeology is to look for the human past but when yeah. it comes to the americas that's a very dangerous thing to do because you will be violently critiqued and attacked is and it just here the status like changing the status quo you can't exactly put your finger on it. It's probably many things, but it's legitimizing indigenous people's links to the land mm. prior to 12,000 years ago and putting them, humanizing them. So Vine Deloria said this, we will not be fully humanized until we are linked with the ancient past. Yeah. So it's actually making them as old as, as humans in other areas of the world. And I do remember um, in preparation for this reading it's an article or an interview you did somewhere where you talk not just about the kind of deep time connection, but also the importance of recognizing that the societies that existed pre-European uh, contact and colonization were complex societies and that America as a country and American individuals really need to reckon with the scale of the the yeah. damage that was done and it wasn't just going into unoccupied space yeah oh exactly yeah no that the people were so extremely diverse um from what i've looked up like on linguistics in language families i think there's some people say 320 some people say 380 language families in the world uh europe has four or five but but the americas has more language families than anywhere else in the world. I think there's over 160. How do you get 
that high of a diversity in linguistics and culture if you don't have a lot of people. So if you look at the land 10 to 12,000 years ago, people were everywhere in North and South America. They covered both continents. You know, they were extremely diverse. Every different area they lived in would have required different cultural practices. Mm-hmm. So they were very, very diverse. And, and people aren't taught that, but they have to reckon with that. When when contact came and people people were destroyed, whether intentionally or unintentionally, 95% of that cultural dis- uh, diversity disappeared from the American continent, or it was erased from the American continent. And people have come out with some really unique um, articles and ways of looking at the numbers of people like William Denovan, and I believe they've argued there was easily over 100 million people. Yeah. And there was, was a great diversity. And there's a guilt associated for a lot of people in learning that their predecessors may have been a part of a genocide. Mm-hmm. But we need to discuss this because you know what? It's just fact. There there was a genocide. There was a lot of intentional deaths, you know, and there's no reason to continue that. Archaeologists continue that using the written word, mm-hmm. right? I, can, I coined the term in 2012, and, and actually um, this is the one thing in my career that I kind of I'm kind of proud of I'm, while well, I made a word. <laughs> <laughs> that is pretty cool. <laughs> I coined the term pyroepistemology. So it's a meta- metaphorical terminology that describes the work of critical indigenous scholarship and the decolonizing work carried out by like-minded and informed peers and allies with indigenous scholars. So. For thousands of years, indigenous people practiced pyro regeneration. They used fire to clean the land. They mm-hmm. burned away a dense undergrowth, and that allowed, you know, the sunlight to bring new earth to the life, to regenerate that, that area. So a practice of pyroepistemology is a ceremony that cleanses the academic landscape of discussions that misinform worldviews, and discussions that fuel racism. So such literary renewal clears the way for a healthy growth in academic fields of thought and centers of knowledge production. Right? That is awesome. I love, I love that. Oh Thank God. you. I, I'm going to make t-shirts, so. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, seriously, this is the kind of thing that, that I would love to see new archaeologists being taught. Just them yeah. getting the whole idea that colonization is still in bed. It's violent. It's damaging. Mm-hmm. But when we look at high rates of suicide in indigenous communities, what those what people say helps is hope. My, my daughter went to a, a meeting. Uh, it was like a circle group of a big group of young indigenous women in northern BC. And and they were all there to discuss issues. They were all indigenous. And they were all supposed to say one thing, go around the circle, say one thing that brought them hope. And my daughter said, this young girl, just her eyes lit up and she said, well, I heard about this archeologist in the States that's, a, that's an Indian and she's saying we've been here over 50,000 years. That gives me hope that we'll get our history and identity back. And then my daughter said, tee hee hee, I didn't tell her it was my mom. <laughs> so, but, you know, that hearing that is really, 
it really brings a lot uh, to my mind and to my heart. It, I, I keep that thought on days I get tired. So if yeah. that is bringing people hope, then um, I can't wait for my book to get out, and hopefully it will get to a lot of indigenous communities because it's reclaiming land. It's reclaiming links to land. It's reclaiming all of these areas with cultural resources that are currently held by museums. It's reclaiming mm -hmm. cultural heritage, right? Tangible yeah. and intangible. And that's really important. When you have been a person that has been dispossessed of everything, your people have faced a genocide. You have, like me, lost all of your ancestral lands, and so many other people lost all their ancestral lands. We lost a few generations of people to to genocide and to the stress of residential schools, to reclaim anything is huge. Yeah. So I'm really, really happy to see when people are reclaiming identities, reclaiming land, reclaiming ancestors, reclaiming our histories and our links to land is important to healing, right? Yeah. We, we need healing and, and we need to come into this area of the eighth fire where where everybody is living in peace. But to do that, we first need to talk about the truth. Truth has to come before healing and reconciliation. Yes. Truth makes many um, non-Indigenous people very uncomfortable. We're only getting to a place, at least in Canada, where the truth about residential schools is taught. Mm -hmm. But, you know, a lot of the people my age and even younger than me that I talk to have no clue whatsoever about colonization in the past or the present. So I think archaeology needs to have a required class on colonization. Mm -hmm. Agreed. Yeah, the states are in a similar, as I'm sure you've seen, shape. Um, yeah. There's a couple of spots, and this was something that came up in recent years. In Oregon, they passed a measure a number of years ago that required Indigenous histories molded by the tribes, the local tribes themselves, to be taught in elementary schools, uh, public elementary schools across the state. And that has been implemented as of, I think about two or three years ago, um, is when that requirement sort of just, there was finally implemented, all the curriculum had been created. And it's so refreshing to see um, that, and not just the the fact that that is being taught, but that the tribes have control over the curriculum um, that is being taught in the public schools. And I think uh, what you're talking about feels like it's it's almost like this is a first step towards what you're you're suggesting. Right. Everybody wants to use that <clears throat> that those uh, keywords. And I see universities doing, oh, we're teaching decolonization. I see them doing it all the time. We're mm -hmm. teaching indigenous things. Yeah, when did you teach colonization? Because you know what? People don't have a clue. Yeah. You know, informed people and students that want this understanding, they seek it out and find it. And that is fabulous because then they can share it with, with others that they work with in, in um, archaeology. People aren't, people aren't informed of things that... When I, a lot of times when I speak or when I see other Indigenous scholars speak, you know, you hear archaeologists quite often saying, oh, they're just angry Indians. Oh, they're just angry. What are you so angry for? I'm not angry. I'm just telling the truth. 
So if there's anything that creates a counter discourse to Western ideologies or Western archaeological histories, and in in the case of my research, first migrations, people think you're angry. They don't understand that their histories, the Western histories, cleave links to ancestral places and deny indigenous peoples links to their homelands and the histories across time. But when I reclaim that, I'm creating a dialogue from which indigenous people can challenge erasures of their history, mm-hmm. and it foregrounds their indigenous identities, their links to homelands, and it empowers them in seeking justice. So we were talking a little bit about why is that, that archaeologists are so angry uh, you know, about sites when people claim they're older than 12,000 years, because you know what? It's a way that indigenous people reclaim their land and seek and get justice. And that has been very hard to find in any area of the Americas. People are still fighting for basic rights of education and clean water, never mind recovering their histories across 100,000 years, right? But you got to look at the history of uh, archaeology. So, oh, what's his name? Alex Herlishka. What's his name? (laughs) (laughs) Alex Alex Herlishka argued that uh, the natives had only been here 3,000 years. He based that on one area, one burial site in Alaska. How do you get away with that in archaeology? You're supposed to provide data, right? Mm -hmm. In in the case of, of, of two continents, you need data from two continents. But he got away with it for years, and he went to his grave denying that people had been here more than 3,000 years. Um, people had to fight. Just uh, Higgins from the Denver Museum, he had to fight tooth and nail to get his sites accepted for a few years to change it to look. Here's a Clovis point in a bison rib. This bison's been extinct for 10,000 years. He even left it in place, right? So mm-hmm. It made them come and look at it. That's ridiculous. Yeah. But people had been here for 10,000 years, you know, and we've been stuck there since the 1920s. Mm-hmm. Nobody would accept anything older. Why? If you go to any other part of the world, it's not a big deal if you find an older site. Why would it be stuck here at 10,000 years? In Australia, an island that you had to cross the very deep Wallace line to get to, we know that people have been there over 65, 80,000 years. Mm-hmm. And if you look at if you look at the continents, and so to do this area, it took me a long time to write this book since, since grad school, so like 15 years, because I needed to look at paleo environment. I needed to look at paleo species. And when you look at the paleo environment of Asia 2 million years ago, because mm-hmm. we have sites there in the, that are dated to like 2.1 something million years ago, mm-hmm. it was kind of a, a subtropical landmass. So, so was North America. And guess what? There was a big swath of dry land between the two. You had species that originated in the Americas, like camels, horses, and saber-toothed cats walking across that landmass to what we now know as Asia. You had species from Asia walking across that landmass here into what we now know as North America. And you're going to tell me that even though people were there, they didn't? Mm-hmm. That's an excellent 
Excellent. Right? Morning. And so a lot of archaeology's arguments, when you look at them, I was shocked. As a graduate student, I was in shock. They're based on conjecture. If mm -hmm. I try to pass something off as, as scientific based on conjecture, my career would be over. But a yeah. lot of old white guys been doing this for a long, long time and getting away with it. So when you actually look at the science and the data for people having been here only 12,000 years, you know what? There is none. It's not supported. Yeah. There's yeah. a lot of evidence that people have been here a lot longer. Oh, am I going on a rant? Oh, no, <laughs> totally fine. I think. I mean, it's a it's a great spot to to tie up there, and we can definitely get into this more in the next segment. Trust me, we have ranted extensively. Um, We're very good at men in our field. Yeah. In our field, I think it's just a really good. It's a really good example to show students. Um, yeah. You really need to question things, so don't exactly. just believe what somebody tells you or what somebody lectures or what you read. Think about how you can question it and why. Yes, and that is perfect. Yes, and so for all our listeners, question everything. It's great. It's cathartic. It's good for you. <laughs> when we come back, we will get more into um, the book and uh, Dr. Steve's amazing research position um, in Canada. There's so many great things to talk about. We'll be back. Looking for other archaeology podcasts? There's so many to choose from. Why not try Archie Fantasies and bust myths surrounding ancient finds and people? Or learn about the study of animal bones and archie animals? There's also the great Go Dig a Hole and the Ark and Anth podcasts. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the Women in Archaeology podcast and all of these fun archaeology podcasts that are available on iTunes, Spotify, all over the place. Thanks for listening. Welcome back. We are here with Dr. Steve, and we've been discussing her upcoming book. And this is an excellent time um, to note that you can pre-order her book um, on the website. And Dr. Steve, if you could provide the website and the name of your book again. Yeah, um, you can order it from the University of Nebraska Press, but it's already it's out there on all the typical book websites on Amazon on all of them. It's the Indigenous Paleolithic of the Western Hemisphere. It's available now for pre-order, and the solid publication date is July 1st, 2021. That is so exciting. I'm definitely looking forward to reading it, because honestly, most of the, the work that I've read for teaching and whatnot only say, like, at most, there's potential for 18,000 um, years ago for occupation of the Americas. And, I'm very curious, are, what are some sites that you highlight in the book that it could be even some of your favorite ones are like, this one could be from this long ago, and it, I like it because it's cool. You know, <laughs> that Oh, my good. gosh. There are so many amazing sites. Uh, the Pedro Ferrada site in Brazil that Nidhi Guidon worked on for decades is just mm -hmm. an amazing site. And they've got dates back to 50,000 years. And there's actually a number of sites in that area. So what, what people need to kind of envision too, it's just not one or two sites here and there, right? When I've yeah. looked at sites, so I work with Dr. Steve Holland on the Lacina site in Southwest Nebraska for one of the sites I worked on for my dissertation. And, um, 
researching the area and the records, it's surrounded by a number of other sites running from present-day Colorado to uh, Kansas and throughout Nebraska that date between 16,000 and 22,000 years before present. So it's not just that we have the Lacina site where we have a disartic disarticulated um, and what looks like butchered mammoth. We have a lot of other sites around it that are have the same technology and the same evidence. And mm -hmm. you also have to remember there has not been a great deal of financial support for people looking at sites that are older than 12,000 to 14,000 years. Mm. So imagine in your wildest dreams, if all of a sudden this becomes acceptable and people can get grants to study archeological areas where there may be older sites and deeper deposits, how many more are we gonna find? So oh, yeah. if we have 12 sites in this little area that borders Nebraska, Colorado, and Kansas, Wow, uh, working in Kansas for a couple of summers and doing field excavations and, and doing just looking for deposits at sites that have been reported where mammoth bones and tools and other artifacts have been reported. Mm -hmm. uh, every Everywhere that we excavated or explored, we found a lot of spirally fractured mammoth bones. And, um, there's, there's a lot of research that backs up that the only way that these huge, dense bones are broken is intentionally using an anvil and a big rock. So, yeah, that, that's was seen as one of my favorite sites. Um, the Soretti site that has dated to over 130,000 years, there's a lot of evidence there. And, of course, it received a lot of um, overly aggressive critique, but it has really good evidence of early humans. And when we look in that area from central Mexico to southern California, there are a number of sites. This is the one oh, area. Yeah. This is the one area where we have a number of sites that date to over 100,000 years. And so we should be paying attention to that, right? We shouldn't just be denying it. We should be actively pursuing where else can we look? Because that's the norm in archaeology. We are our goals are to look for the human past. And if you mm -hmm. deny it before you look, you're not going to find it. But yeah. the, the, this is the history in the Americas. It hasn't been funded. It's been denied. It's been overly aggressively denied. And people have been attacked for reporting on sites. That's an anomaly in world archaeology. If you go to Africa or you go to, to Russia or Siberia, you're not going to be aggressively attacked for finding an older site. But in the Americas, you are. And that's something archaeology really needs to sit back and consider. That's an issue. That's not archaeology. That's racism. That's hatred. That's anger. That doesn't belong in a professional field. Well, and to add to that, this the way that specifically cultural resource management is done in the U.S. in particular, um, and I'm sure in Canada, you know, it's probably comparable. The way that it's structured, the research is structured when it is involved in an area that may or has potential for older sites even, 
um, is that you're only going a certain depth, which doesn't have anything to do with anything other than a quote unquote minimum standard. So for example, I've used a, a couple of examples um, previously on the show, um, one of which is out of Washington state where the minimum standard didn't do enough to reveal even just a historic site, um, but also the, the site went so deep um, because the nature of the sediments and everything, like the work being done was going deeper than the archeological investigations were and um, the sedimentation history and history of the area went much deeper. So if you're only digging 50 centimeters because that's the state um, minimum or, you know, that's the state requirement, but you're putting in, let's say, building footings that are two meters deep and you have potential deposits that are within, say, 30,000 years within that two meter depth, you should do the whole two meter depth because inevitably there's a good chance you're going to run into something during construction and that doesn't bode well for anyone. And those are the sites that don't get the funding for further research. They don't always get dated and are often swept under the rug. There's a lot of CRM sites that are older and that I've seen reports of, let's say that did get a C14 date of 12,000 years on a pipeline project. And there's a few of them, but they don't get mentioned beyond like, so this that site dated to this period. And you're like, wait, there's really one there. That's awesome. Like, I, I want to know more. And there's no further research that had been done. That's um, so common with CRM reports anyway, where it's just like, yes. here's a cool thing. Okay, done. Next exactly. project. <laughs> yeah, people are, people are taught that, you know, to, to go further than anything that might be 10 or 12,000 years is wrong because people weren't here. They didn't exist. And so it's just, you know, it's uh, mm -hmm. an anomaly, right? And mm -hmm. That's that's not what uh, archaeologists are supposed to do. We're supposed to look for the human past, not deny it. And I, I mean, I've had a few people share with me different, you know, pictures and stories about being on a a CRM fieldwork gig and finding flakes beneath um, the glacial till and being told, "Oh, just leave it. We're not we're not recording that." Sure. So CRM firms don't record. Uh, the possibility of older sites. The few people that do really deserve credit because they knew they were sticking their, their neck out. And some of the people that have discussed older sites were people that previously denied them and they learned to open their eyes and learn to look at the data and say, wait a minute, and they changed their mind. And then mm -hmm. they got, of course, aggressively attacked for saying a site was older than, you know, a certain amount of time. And People have to yes. remember that, you know, the history of the archaeological history of the Americas, the early history was built on this one story uh, embedded by colonial archaeologists. There are many, many stories of how people may have come and gone from the Americas across thousands of years. Why would there be one story, one group of people in one place? Um, yes. No, right? It's not like that on any continent. So we yeah. have to be open to, to looking deeper uh, to accepting older dates and to to accepting that people were here before 18 or 20,000 years ago so that people can get funding 
and actually do the research and we can actually find uh, you know, the real human past of the Americas. And on that note, I should mention for the listeners, I do have a website called the Indigenous Paleolithic Database.com. Um, I list a lot of sites and a lot of data um, on that website. So if people are interested in learning more, they could certainly uh, visit the website. That's great. Excellent. I mean, it is just so important, as you've all been kind of saying, that we make the our theories and what we think we know fit the data and not the other way around. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, that's, that's exactly what they do um, in the Americas. And that's how you save, stay safe. There, there was one quote, Alessanto, I think, said it. He said that no archaeologist in their right mind that desired a career in American archaeology would ever report a date, a site with dates older than 12,000 years. It was committing academic suicide. That's not science, right? No. That's not archaeology. That's colonization and racism. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we have, to, we have to recognize and people have to discuss and teach that this is what's embedded in American archaeology. And we need to challenge it and to change it because it's, it's not the norm in any other country that you'd stop digging at a certain depth or because people didn't exist here before 12. We don't know that. Look how much mm. has changed, right? Just yeah. in human evolution um, in the last few years. And there's so much that's so interesting about the Americas that students don't know. You, I, I ask my students, uh, where did humans evolve? Africa. Yeah, that's correct. From what? Primates. Yes, that's correct. Where did primates evolve? Africa. No, that's wrong. (laughs) The oldest proto-primates are found in Montana and Saskatchewan. The oldest early proto-primates are found in the Americas, right? If people knew that, they'd find it really interesting. Why is this not taught? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, there's a lot that, um, that will really help people understand understand this it's all covered in my book so i i hope that people will be able to get the book and to read it and um and understand how much they have not been taught so mm-hmm. th- there's a term called agentology and it's um based on the premise that education is based on not what people are taught but what they're not taught mm-hmm. so people are being educated to think in ways that are supported by the nation state in these socially acceptable worldviews and people need to think about a lot of things they weren't taught and why and I think that really helps with with people being able to think critically and to grow their mind and their knowledge and their worldview and hopefully uh, in anthropology and archaeology if people start teaching about this it will give students the tools they need to really think critically specifically about archaeology in the Americas to ask a lot of questions. And I really hope I'll see a lot of grad students starting to look into doing research on sites that are older than 12,000 years. Will you be able to uh, do more looking for these sites and working with grad students and so forth with uh, your new position with Canadian Research? Yeah, so I'm, I'm currently at Algoma University in Canada. We have a, uh, a grant called the Canada Research Chair. So this is the most prestigious research grant in Canada. So my uh, 
you, you get hired by a university who has kind of a slot or a position for a Canada research chair. And the university decides who they want to fill that chair. So they will hire the person. The person will spend a year writing the grant. Not everybody that's hired for those uh, positions to write a grant gets the grant. I was um, lucky and I did get a Canada Research Chair in Indigenous History, Healing and Reconciliation. What that uh, supports me with is, and this is um, a Canada Research Chair federal government grant. Mm -hmm. I receive um, 500, well actually it's more now. I, I receive $500,000 over five years plus another $20,000 a year stipend to do research. And I'm only required to teach one class a year. That gives me much more time to write and do research. So I actually write and do research uh, 365 days a year. I never, hardly ever take a day off. And I have a lot of students that work for me there right now. They, they've worked on my um, archaeology sites database. Right now that's sitting waiting to grow because I have them working on a Rock Art of Canada database, which is probably going to be over 2,000 sites. Um, and given that we're in a pandemic, it's kind of difficult to get uh, student research assistance right now. But I think last year, over the last two years, I've had 11 or 12 working for me, and they're constantly working on building databases, archaeology sites, rock art sites, and now we're going to start oral traditions. Um, and working on gathering data and learning about what they're working on, about why we're doing this. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. that's um, what I do with the Canada Research Chair. I hope uh, the pandemic will get under control and I can get out and start doing more uh, field work in 20, maybe later 2021 or 2022. So, um, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm very grateful uh, for having received this um, opportunity and this grant. But, it, but what it said to me is that you know, I had to write a multi-page grant and tell everything about my research. And I thought, they're either going to think I'm crazy or they're going to believe me and support this. And they believe me. So a group of scientists, because these grants are, they're not just given, they're very well reviewed by scientists and people in different fields in Canada and archaeologists, in my case, probably. So that told me that I had provided them enough data that they believed my uh, my research proposal that people had been here probably over 100,000 years. They believed me, and that meant so much to me to be believed and to be funded to do this research. So one thing I like to remind people that want to instantly, archaeologists that want to instantly deny earlier sites is that excuse me there are other stories there is a lot of data and the one thing i find consistently with archaeologists that deny earlier sites they don't know any of the sites right yeah. so i got my website up this year and i sent it off to a few of them and they're like wow we didn't know all these sites existed well then why are you denying that people have been here you don't yeah. know the data right because mm -hmm. it's a rhetoric that's embedded in um, archaeology it's what they're taught yeah and also I want to say you didn't get lucky that you got this grant you worked your tail off and earned it yeah. 
Thank you. Yeah, yeah, I did. <laughs> <laughs> and it is very heartening uh, to see you do the work that you do and uh, the, yeah, just everything that's uh, coming of light and coming around um, in uh, the research uh, in the early uh, Americas. As we're coming to the last couple minutes here, Dr. Steves, do you have any closing thoughts you would like to share um, with our audience in terms of questioning uh, past misconceptions and moving archaeology forward and so forth? Well, it's, it's really important in archaeology, not just that the students um, maybe get my book or look at my website and start to think critically. Archaeology professors and archaeologists themselves need to understand that it's really important for them to reconceptualize, to challenge what they have been taught, because erasure of the past has a really negative impact on indigenous people. So we're looking at reclaiming so much. I mean, indigenous peoples are coming out of a out of a time of genocide, and they're reclaiming their lands, their languages, their cultures, their agriculture, you know, their knowledge. They're picking up their sacred bundles again and learning to teach. And and a part of that is that we need archaeologists to tell the real story of our past. We need archaeologists to consider indigenous knowledge, to really look at our oral traditions, because there's a lot of oral traditions that talk about species that have been extinct for over 10,000 years. There's mm -hmm. a mammoth dance. There's astrological knowledge. There is so much in oral traditions um, that archaeologists could learn to understand the indigenous past from. And I would ask archaeologists, and professors, please throw out those books that talk about us as having disappeared mysteriously. And pick up some papers, get some papers from, there's a lot of indigenous archaeologists now. So when I started as an undergrad, I didn't know a single indigenous faculty, an indigenous student, or an indigenous archaeologist. Now I am so, so happy. There are many. So there's a huge body of really fabulous indigenous literature linked to archaeology and colonization and decolonization. So I would really encourage specifically professors and faculty in archaeology to re-educate themselves and to, to maybe not even re-educate themselves, but to learn more, to expand their vision, because you've been given a very small constrained vision of the indigenous past and indigenous people and there's such a wealth of beautiful knowledge out there now that could expand your vision and really support your teaching of indigenous people because that teaching is what students base their worldview on how do we change racism we change worldviews that's mm -hmm. how yes. dr steves that, that thank you so much this has been an incredible discussion. We really appreciate you coming on the show and sharing your knowledge and your research and your work and this an incredible call to action. We really appreciate it. So seriously, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Yeah, thank, you. thank you for inviting me. Of course. 
It's great having you. And if you ever wish to uh, rant again or have uh, another space to to play and talk about any um, specific sites or niche subjects, uh, this was a good, great, uh, broad overview of Indigenous archaeology and colonization and de decolonization. But feel free to, to contact us as well if you want to dive a little deeper. Uh, to our listeners, uh, please check out our other episodes and you can check us out on Twitter at, at Women Archies. If you are interested in contacting us about coming on the show or you have um, episode ideas, please contact us at womeninarchaeology at gmail.com. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to our episodes so we know what you enjoy listening to and we can give you more great content content like today's episode again thank you for listening enjoy 2021 exactly <laughs> thank you for listening and enjoy 2021 bye, bye. bye.